All right, so we look to uh, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, verse 1 to 5, and for emphasis, I do want to reread uh, at least the first few verses that we're looking at today. So I'll reread verses 1 to 5, and uh, I'll be reading from the New American Standard Bible Translation. Uh, in verse 1, uh, it reads, It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, and immorality of such a kind as does not exists even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. For I, on my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged them who has so committed this as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. As we look to this passage, uh, I've entitled it, Paul Rebuked Immorality. Paul Rebuked Immorality. Paul expressed grave concern for the Corinthians, mostly because uh, by the time we get to this particular chapter, we are seeing evidence of their self-destruction. And it, it's, it's not that they were completely destroyed, but they were self-destructing. And it is one thing for us to identify the factions uh, they established as the evidence of that, because that's certainly the evidence that they were self-destructing. However, what Paul addressed next is directly tied to both the cause and the effect uh, of the factions. And in this case, he points to sexual immorality, immorality of a sexual nature. So Paul established before the Corinthians, just as they were complicit in the hero worship and the desecration of God's glory, because they were certainly actively participating in both. And he establishes first that they had done that through through their factions in chapter one. And then also he readdresses it in chapter three. But they were also accomplices to sin and accomplices to sin in the area of immorality that was beginning to spring up in the Corinthian church. There was also a brazenness, a forwardness, an unashamed way in which the Corinthian church not only practiced this sin, but allowed it to continue unchecked. So they practice this sin and they allow it to just continue and they don't say anything to the individuals who are guilty of the sin, nor do they do anything to stop the sin. And so Paul identified this as arrogance, as arrogance. And we see that he says this multiple times. If you look at uh, chapter four, verse 18, He says, now, some of you have become arrogant. And we talked about that. And then earlier, he also speaks to their arrogance uh, earlier in chapter four. And then he deals with their arrogance uh, throughout chapter one uh, as he speaks of the wisdom of God countered against the foolishness of man. But in all these things, he cites arrogance as the condition upon which these Corinthians have settled. And it's the reason that they're allowing sin to run its course throughout the life of the church. But it's also why you and I have been identifying the distinction between humility, specifically Paul's humility and arrogance, 
specifically the Corinthians arrogance. So we have been contrasting Paul's humility with the Corinthians arrogance. And we do that because that's what Paul was doing in this letter. He was essentially coming to the people and saying, this is what humility looks like. This is what it looks like to serve the people and to love the people and to honor them. And then he keeps pointing out their sins and telling them this is what arrogance looks like. This is what it looks like when you begin to uh, function in a way of tremendous pride. But here in our particular passage this morning, in the verses that we're concentrated on this morning, it shows up not only in the factions, not only in the question as we looked at in chapter four uh, as to whether Paul were coming to them or not, but also in the enabling and permitting sin to continue in their midst. So we see that their arrogance has shown up time and again so far. And where we are in the letter, it's going to show up again with reference to the Lord's Supper, with reference to partiality, with reference to lawsuits and uh, desecration of, of the Lord's table related to the supper and the spiritual gifts. All those things will be evident. But for now, we see it for what it is. It is arrogance. And Paul points, he points very closely uh, to this arrogance that was prevailing on the Corinthians. But Paul had received a, a report, and I believe that it's joined to the first report that he spoke of concerning Chloe's people, and that he spoke of in Corinthians chapter 1 of a letter that would have been a continuously written letter. I believe that he's referring to the same report and to the same individuals. And I believe that the report uh, is joined to the first conflict, but also shows the effects of that conflict. So I believe that it is implied that uh, Chloe's people have also reported that this immorality was running rampant along with the factions because I believe that the two are very much related. And so that's how Paul addresses them. But Paul did receive a report that there was immorality among the Corinthians. And again, I would say I believe it's possibly linked to the first report. I think that's important because Chloe was not seen as someone that was in the way. Chloe was not seen and her people. They were not seen as individuals who existed in the fellowship of that particular church and in the society around it, that they were reporting things which were accurate. And Paul expected the Corinthians there to deal with it specifically. So in the sense, I would say the factions were not the only thing reported to Paul because Paul is still remote from the Corinthian church. I believe that there were a few things reported to Paul, which is why we see in this letter he begins to address all the concerns uh, that need to be resolved. But but the worst thing that was taking place, I believe, was the immorality. I believe that the factions are certainly a major issue. I believe the desecration of the Lord's table is a major issue. But I also believe that this immorality was demonstrating and and causing people, even the society around them, to question if they indeed had come to faith in Christ or not, because that's what was at stake. It wasn't simply trying to reach the finer points of some doctrinal issue, but this was going down to the very evidence of whether they were born again, whether they had a new nature, whether they had truly come to know of Christ and his truth and whether they functioned in fellowship surrounding him at all. So he received this report. 
They were going beyond, Paul says, the sins of the Gentiles. For he says it is actually reported after talking about coming to them and talking about the power of which he had to come in the uh, related to the kingdom of God to the church in the previous couple of verses. He says it is actually reported that there is immorality among you and immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles. So their sins were even distinct from the sins of the Gentiles around them. And so we are very much confronted with the scriptures uh, prioritizing of judgment beginning with the house of God, judgment beginning with the church itself, as opposed to the world at large. And Paul will say much of that later in this particular text. But they were going beyond the sins of the Gentiles and they were permitting this sin to flourish like a parasite. And so the sin was flourishing in their midst. Paul then is specific because he says that someone has his father's wife and he is putting it mildly. But if we look at just all that surrounding the immorality that was present and what it means, uh, essentially it was the sin of sexual immorality. So this sin was happening between a father's son and the father's wife. And Paul does not seem to word it as though it were incestuous, although that doesn't take away from the wickedness of the sin. But he does say it is perverse in that it takes place within the family context. So it's a sin that strikes at the very fabric of what God had designed in the union of man and woman. But mainly for that reason, Paul rebukes it as a perversion of God's design for marital union. It is why later he'll talk about the correct way to view man and wife within the context of this letter and also the other letters he wrote. Also, it's not only this and not to drag our minds through the mire, but it's not only this. It is sin of a sexual perverse nature when you look at the context and the way in which uh, Paul addresses this. That he's signifying the general act and the specific acts. And he also seems to include the reality that the Corinthians knew exactly what was happening, that the Corinthians were not at all taken aback, that the Corinthians gave no pause, that the Corinthians figured that this can continue in the life of the church. uh, And they didn't see it as something to be rebuked. But as I've said, there's no need to drag our minds through the mud, so to speak. But what I will say is this, is that this was intolerable. This was intolerable. Paul charged them not to tolerate this. He says, in fact, that they should have mourned. Look at verse two. You have become arrogant. You have become arrogant and you have not mourned instead. So a form of humility is to mourn over your sin, but also to mourn over the sins of others. A form of arrogance is to let those sins continue unchecked. And to have no mourning over the sins around you, nor the sins uh, in yourself. And he also implies that humility is to take action against sin. It is humility. Uh, It is humble, a humble act to do something about it. Look at what he says. So that the one who has done this deed would be removed from your midst. It is a humble thing to remove one who claims to be a brother in Christ, who claims to be 
belonging to Christ and yet to remove that one from your midst. He says that takes humility. It is arrogance to simply gather people on some superficial basis as people persist in their sins and to then allow that sin to flourish or those sins to flourish. Paul identifies that as arrogance. But he says it is humble to remove him. So much for the modern day church growth programs. Because Paul says not only do you have to deal with sin, you have to remove those who are sinning. Through this, Paul breaks through the barriers of partiality. He breaks through the barriers of uh, political correctedness. He breaks through the barriers of what would then seem to be affection and affinity for individuals upon some standard that is not a biblical one. Because at this point, again, the factions are also flourishing along with the sins. And so he's very specific. He says they should have mourned. There should have been repentance. There should have been the expulsion of the one who claimed to belong to to the fellowship and yet persisted in unrepentant sin. That they were unrepentant themselves for allowing the sin to continue as they knew the sin was evident among them. That Paul charged them all with being unrepentant in this way. But then again, if you think about it, do you really see how deceitful sin is? I'm going to tell you how it's deceitful. Because if you look at the previous verses before, and I was thinking about this as I was studying this. As we talked about the last group of verses in chapter 4, specifically 14 to 21. The Corinthians were trivializing whether or not Paul would come to them. That's what they were hung up on. They weren't hung up on the sin of immorality in their midst. They were hung up on whether or not Paul would show up. Do you see how trivial that is? So that shows you how deceitful sin is. I'll go further. They were mocking the whole instance of Paul's care and love for them in his absence, all while harboring sin in their hearts and harboring the sins of others. They were full accomplices to sin within the church and... Without judging that, they were judging Paul for not being there. Instead of judging the people who were among them for sinning in their midst. And so I believe that that is why Paul goes at this. And I believe it's why he transitions into it the way he does. Because look at what he says in verse 21 of chapter 4. What do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? Well, why would he come with them with a rod? Why does he bring up in verse 18? Now, some of you have become arrogant as though I were not coming to you. I believe this arrogance was because they were harboring sin. And so Paul is dealing with them and saying, should I come to you and rebuke you personally or will you rebuke each other? Now, we mentioned that last time that Paul wanted them to deal with their own sins within their fellowship And he said, if you won't deal with it, I'm coming anyway. I would like to come with you as one who partakes of and enjoys fellowship with you. But I can certainly come to rebuke you. And so they were harboring sin and questioning whether Paul himself were going to come to them. This is arrogance. It's arrogance. Instead, what they should have been doing is beating their chest like the tax collector 
and confessing themselves to be sinners unworthy of God's grace in their present state, pleading for mercy in the cleansing of his blood upon them by Jesus Christ and his perfect sacrifice on the cross. Instead, what happens is they do not mourn. And none of them thought that this was sinful enough to remove the unrepentant sinner from among them. They didn't think that this was even worth considering because that's what arrogance is and that's what arrogance does. There was supposed to be what Paul is referring to, and I believe he's making a very prophetic appeal. There's supposed to be the Old Testament type of sobriety that we saw in Achan's sin. That we saw with respect to the strange fire of Aaron's sons in Leviticus or the mourning of Moses related to the golden calf sin of adultery. Or Nathan going to David. We should have seen these things and Paul says none of this is evident. There was none of this. And the issue is, is the people thought they knew better than they actually did. So they were deceived. Paul, however, let them know that the judgment had already been rendered in his absence. And I think it's this interchange of him showing them that in his absence, he has done more for them than he has done in their presence. Because they were questioning his effectiveness related to his absence. But he's saying, I'm doing more than you absent than you are present. I'm dealing with sin while absent from you. You're not dealing with sin while present among you. And among those who practice the sins. It is to put it this way. If Paul could render the judgment in his absence. It was only for wickedness and cowardice. That they would not do so in person. If Paul could render judgment in his absence. Because he did. He says it very plainly. I'm judging this sin in my physical absence. Yet spiritually with you. I'll read the verse. But he says. Essentially, he labels them and brands them, I believe, as being wicked for not doing anything about it. And it's implied that they're cowards for not doing anything about it while they're there. Look at verse three. For I, on my part, though absent in body. But present in spirit, because really that's all that matters in the fellowship of the church. Truly. Now, I'm not saying that we don't physically gather together, but I'm saying when we gather together, we're really present in spirit as well. And so Paul is saying, I can't be there with you physically because of his duties as an apostle. But he's saying I'm present in spirit. But look at what he says. I, on my part, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. I would do this as being present or absent. But Paul says, I've done this. Even being absent from you physically, I've done this as though I were present. And he gives us the credential for being able to do so. Look at verse four in the name of our Lord Jesus. In the name of our Lord Jesus, these affairs are all presided over by the great judge himself. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled and I with you in spirit. So in your assembly. There is a spiritual fellowship that all the believing Christians enjoy, uh, enjoy, even when we are on a local level. That we are present with all the believers before Christ, even if we are 
locally and physically separated from one another. And Paul looks at these matters concerning the judgments that he must render. And he says, with the power of our Lord Jesus. And then he talks about what he decides to do. Now listen, Paul was not simply interested in the high drama of removing the unrepentant man from their midst. Because there is a lustful high drama flair that goes with calling out people in their sins that people just love about this. It's the highlight of some modern evangelicals weeks. But what Paul wanted is what we all should want. He wanted to see the true church presented in holiness before God, especially on that great day. In fact, he's using end times eschatological language, as they would say. It's as I've said, so many people love the high drama of simply removing people from their midst. But their so-called churches still flourish in sin unchecked and covered up. So then they've, they've accomplished nothing really. You can read off names and still allow sin to flourish. You can tell people that they are removed and still allow sin to flourish. What Paul did not want, he did not want the Corinthians to simply wash their hands, not like the prophets could wash their hands, not like Isaiah and Jeremiah could wash their hands because they have proclaimed the full counsel of God to the people. But he didn't want them to wash their hands like Pilate. He didn't want them to be pragmatists, to simply say, I've removed it. I've removed him, but I've done nothing about my arrogance. Paul says the way that you display that you've removed him and his sin from your midst is that you also mourn over his sin and mourn over your own sins. So Paul certainly saw himself as among them. He saw himself among them in fellowship and he saw himself among them in their judgments. Now, let me tell you something, because today what you hear is what business is it of yours to look at the greater scope of what's happening in Christianity at large around the world or at some church that's confessing to be a church that is whether it be within proximity or not within proximity of where we gather. But it's often a finger is often uh, wagged in your face and you're told, what business is this of yours? Well, Paul has made it our business in the sense that we are in spiritual fellowship with people who are confessing to be Christians. If they're Christians, if they're not Christians and they're the world and there's no reason for us to treat them as though that we have fellowship with them, even spiritually speaking. But I believe that there is something to apply to our thinking in this. Being physically absent from believers doesn't mean that we're spiritually neglect in the care of other believers. It means that we do have some care for other believers spiritually. And so Paul deals with this in that way. Paul saw himself among them. He was not physically present But he was present with them in spirit. And as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul saw himself as a delegate, as a delegate of Jesus Christ himself. Jesus presiding over the church, but Paul presiding over the affairs of the church and the churches at large because he was an apostle. 
Now, no man can function as such today, given the cessation of the apostolic office. But I am saying that the matters that plague the greater church at large should certainly plague us. But also, we recognize to a point that some churches who are saying their churches are not churches at all. What Paul is trying to figure out with respect to the Corinthians is to what category do they belong? Are they a church or are they just a group of individuals who are arrogant? So therefore, Paul, even in his absence, which I believe in a way he's throwing back at them, he's throwing his absence that they mocked him for back at them and saying, in my absence, I've accomplished more among you than you are present because all that's happening while you're present is you're sinning. But in my absence, I'm judging the sins that you're guilty of practicing while present. But they are just as guilty as they would be in Paul's absence as they are and would have been in his presence. Because essentially what Paul is saying is that the church is committed and entrusted to the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul is essentially saying this to them, but he says more. Look at uh, look at verse uh, verse uh, four in the name of our Lord Jesus. When you are assembled now with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. And there's a lot to, to say and a lot that has been said about this verse. But Paul essentially is saying to them, since you since you will not judge while physically present, I will judge spiritually, though physically absent. And what they should have done spiritually while physically present. Paul said, I'm going to do it. I'm going to demonstrate it for you. Because what they were busy wrangling about was hero worship and personality cultism. And then questioning Paul's. Appearance or absence. All this trivial rhetoric, because that's what Paul says. If you look at verse 20 of chapter four, for the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. So y'all have a lot to say, but there's not really a lot you're demonstrating in God's power. And I'm going to show you how you have neglected to demonstrate God's power. You you can't even nor are you willing to deal with sin. And if sin is flourishing, then it is certainly clear that God's power is absent. It's not that God's power isn't effective. It's that God's power is not there because you don't acknowledge him. And so that's what Paul makes a distinction. But all this overuse of words on their on their part displayed an arrogance. And you know what it was really meant to do? It was really meant to cover their sin. It was really meant to cover their sin. Paul did not have to be present physically to deal with them. They needed to be present together to deal with each other. But again, in their arrogance, they would not. They would not do it. They would not do it. When we look at verse four, when you look at it closely, because he says in the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled and I with you in spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus, and then gets to the judgment. You see, as we move into this particular area of the text, Paul is beginning to correct their understanding of salvation. 
of fellowship and specifically how that fellowship took place in the life of the church. I want you to understand something, though. Paul was with them. It was not simply a a phrase and platitude or something that he's saying just to sound like he cares. He was with them. This is ecclesiology. He's saying we are all born again in Christ. He's the head of the church. We are all spiritually with him. He in us, his spirit in us, and therefore we enjoy not only physical fellowship, but we enjoy spiritual fellowship with believers. And so Paul is able to deal with the issue because he understood spiritual fellowship. The great problem of today is that people only want physical activity and physical so-called fellowship. And so they only look to things in their locale, directly in their purview. But what Paul is dealing with is spiritual fellowship. He cares about the Corinthians because he wants spiritual fellowship with them in Christ and with Christ. He doesn't simply want a physical gathering with them, a physical hearing. He wants to enjoy spiritual fellowship. And I believe this is why he could render the judgments he did. Yes, he's an apostle, but I believe his understanding of spiritual fellowship caused him to look at the greater church at large and be able to render proper judgments. Why? Well, this was the issue with the Corinthians. They were physically present together, but spiritually absent from one another. That describes the condition of many so-called churches today. Physically present together, but spiritually absent from one another. And I would say in that environment, as we look to what has taken place in Corinth, being physically gathered together... As so many are, masses of people gathered together, a few people gathered together. But if those individuals are spiritually absent from one another, that is how sin flourishes. That is how sin flourishes. Spiritual absence would mean to forsake the will of God and how God has designed to deal with the things that plague not only his people, but his church. To lay God's commands aside and to perform them another way or to ignore them altogether. To try to resolve and solve issues based on man-made constructs. That is to be physically. You and I may be sitting in a room together addressing issues, but we're spiritually absent from one another. Because we're not bringing in God's administration to deal with the issues. Paul did not simply call the Corinthians to community. That's the that's the buzzword of modern evangelicalism today. He didn't call them to community. That vagueness of just be around each other. Let's make sure not to offend one another. He didn't just say exist in community. They were already in community. They were a tight knit community of unrepentant sinners covering for other unrepentant sinners. They were in community. Paul called for spiritual fellowship. We must call for that beyond this modern notion of community. Paul wanted spiritual fellowship because you know where spiritual fellowship brings us? 
doesn't simply bring us together. Spiritual fellowship brings us to the feet of Christ in his holiness. That's what Paul wanted. That's why Paul could say without partiality, without concern over feelings of unrepentant sinners, he could say, remove the guy. Get him out of here. He could say that because if we're all going to enjoy spiritual fellowship at the feet of Christ, there has to be evidence of spiritual faithfulness, spiritual fidelity. And so then, because Paul, as an apostle, was a delegate to the church sent by Jesus Christ himself, I believe the next thing he says is tied directly to that. Paul executed on behalf of Christ, on behalf of Christ and in Christ and through Christ, the judgment necessary for the occasion. The occasion is immorality that thrives even to the point where the Gentiles would not even perform such a thing. And I, I believe that it's also implicit that the uh, that the uh, the Gentiles would not perform such a thing in the midst of other Christians coming into the church and, and doing what the world does. But even beyond that, the judgment necessary for the occasion for the occasion is listed in, in verse five. And I believe it's on the basis of spiritual fellowship that Paul desired that he renders the judgment along with his apostleship. For verse five, he says, I have decided unique to himself. So I want you to understand that we can't go around saying we're handing people over to Satan because it won't make sense in our context to do it, because I believe that Paul is speaking very plainly as an apostle, which means he's speaking very plainly as a delegate directly sent from Jesus Christ himself to the people to resolve this issue. Sent from Jesus Christ, not sent from Jesus Christ spiritually or based on the command that proceeds forth from the epistles and the great commission. He's sent by Jesus himself. Personally, intimately and specifically to resolve this sin. And so Paul says he doesn't say we have decided. He doesn't say the churches on this side have decided to rule against the churches in Corinth. He says, I have decided. I have decided. I, an apostle of the Lord Jesus and his power, have decided to handle this issue this specific way. And what is that specific way? To deliver such a one to Satan. He sounds very much like the prophets. He sounds very much like the apostles and like Christ himself. To deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. <clears throat> Why to Satan? Why to Satan? Why does he bring up Satan? Why does he say Why doesn't he just say decided to deliver you to elders, decided to deliver you to your flesh? Why does he say to Satan? Well, I believe there's a couple of things that are happening in this passage. He's talking about the destruction of the flesh for the salvation of the soul. And that Satan would, in this case, it is very much like the language that Jesus spoke to Peter. That Satan, in this case, would sift the man like wheat so as to destroy the flesh. That Paul wanted that specifically for him. Well, why? 
because the man was existing within the life of the church, challenging the headship of Christ directly and doing so in a way that only Satan does, but equally guilty of it through his flesh. And I believe that the man's flesh needed to be destroyed in a very particular way. Because listen also, it is evident that the father's wife and the father's son were already committed to Satan. But they were committed to Satan to do his bidding in very subtle ways. Paul says apostolically, I'm going to change that. What will then take place is I'm delivering you to Satan to be sifted by him. So that when you return to us, you will truly know what it is to be holy. So he personally delivers him to Satan. He renders the judgment. This isn't simply what Paul is wishing to do. This isn't what he's hoping to do. And he does not instruct the Corinthians to do this part. He tells the Corinthians, remove him. I'm committing him to Satan. You remove him from your midst. This being implied, if you don't remove him from your midst, what do you think will happen to the Corinthian church at large? They will be delivered to Satan. So he says judgment is coming to him in this very specific way for his perverse sin. Disassociate from him or else this judgment will fall upon you. I believe it's why he asked the question he did in chapter four, verse 21. What do you desire? What do you what do you want? What is it you want as a church? Shall I come to you with a rod? Do you want to be corrected by me? Because to be corrected by me is to be corrected by Christ directly, is what Paul is saying. Or do you want with love and a spirit of gentleness, the kindness of God that leads you to repentance? Which one do you want? Do you want to be committed to Satan? Or do you want to be committed to God? And so I believe that Paul is bringing out that desire from them. I believe that in this, it is the same language that we discussed when our brother was here talking to us about Cain and Abel. I believe it's very similar. That it's not some, okay, I'm going to give him to Satan, but everybody else is okay. It's, listen, they're already committed to him. I'm going to turn him over to him. And he must respond accordingly for you to welcome him back. So he must render the proper repentance and it must be evident because if it's not evident, you are welcoming Satan yourself because Satan is just as perverse as he is. They were already committed. So it was for Paul. You see it specifically. It was for Paul to determine as an apostle of Christ. The severity of the judgment from God. So Paul, it was up to him. For one, they wouldn't do it. So it was now up to Paul. And Paul was accountable to Christ directly and specifically for the churches entrusted to his care under Christ's headship and kingship. So the severity of judgment from God committing them to the world and to the prince of this world. He was saying, turn him over to the prince of this world, to the prince of the power of the air, so that the man may be brought low. And if we bring him low, 
what do you think will happen when he's welcomed back into the Corinthian fellowship? They will be brought low because they all were lofty. He wanted this man to meet face to face with the one who is the epitome of pride and arrogance so that he could be sifted like wheat. So that he could be brought low for the purpose of repentance and salvation. In this, your mind probably goes to the account of Job. Your mind probably goes to the temptation of Christ in Matthew 4. Your mind probably goes to Peter and his denials against the Lord. And then being restored to what was his faith in Christ all along. But listen, what Paul calls for is what I think is key in this situation. It's why I said the high drama of it all is fleshly. Expelling people from the church, but not expelling the right people from the church. And not expelling everybody who sins, just the people who sinned and you were personally offended. Paul is talking about alienation for the purpose of reconciliation. He wants this man to be alienated from the fellowship, not just to cast him out and to talk about him, but he wants him to be alienated so that he would be reconciled the right way. In other words, he came into the Corinthian fellowship another way. As Jesus says, even in John, uh, uh, in John chapter 14, I am the way, the truth and the life. This man came another way. When Jesus talks about himself as being the good shepherd, the chief shepherd. In John chapter 10. And how those who are not of his fold come in another way. This man came in another way. And so Paul says, get him out of here. He didn't belong in the first place. But what I want for him is his reconciliation and restoration. And when he returns, I want him to return as one who is embraced because he has abandoned his sin. So it's alienation for the purpose For the purpose of reconciliation. It's not just discipline. It's not this this idea of just church discipline. Perpetual church discipline. For its own gratification. It is no. Get him out of here because he's sinning flagrantly. He won't repent. But I want him to be reconciled. I want him back. In as much as he's repentant. Next time when we look at this we'll examine... The specifics of this judgment. Let's pray.